You're listening to World Building for Masochists. And we're wondering why we still do this to ourselves. Because, you know, building a different world to escape into can be a legit form of self-care. I'm Cass Morris. I'm Marshall Ryan Moreska. I'm Rowena Miller, and this is episode 27, Potpourri 2, Two Po, Two Pourri. Welcome, friends and listeners. <laughs> Hope how are you all doing today? We're starting our second year of building crazy worlds till it hurts. How are you all doing today? We are jumping in on season two. I know I am very excited. I think we had, you know, a more spectacular season one than I even anticipated. Honestly, I, the the guest stars that we had, the stuff we talked about, it was. It was beyond my wildest expectations. I don't know about you, Marshall, but I was beyond thrilled with how our first season went, and I am beyond thrilled to jump into season two. As am I. Uh, I think it went very well, and this season we've got a new co-host. Who's our new co-host? We are so excited to welcome <laughs> Cass Morris, who, vis- who our listeners who have been with us will recognize, and I'm sure be very excited to welcome back yet again. Cass, welcome. We're excited. Hi. I'm so excited to be joining y'all on on a regular basis. I love you both so much. And I'm genuinely honored. And I'm just really happy that I'm going to get to sit down and talk with you all about world building nonsense a couple times a month. That's just, it's so much fun. I'm so excited. (laughs) I'm excited too. I think this is going to be a fantastic year. we're excited and you know honestly this would be like the episode to jump in on for the first time if listeners had never joined us before so i wonder if we might go ahead and introduce ourselves quickly briefly who we are what we do um just in case we have any new listeners jumping in right now cass would you like to go first since you are our shiny new co-host sure i i will being temporarily shiny trust me that's gonna rub off fast i'm sure (laughs) um I, I am Cass Morris. I'm the author of From Unseen Fire, which came out in 2018. My debut is a Roman-flavored historical fantasy novel. And the second book in the Oven Cycle series, Giveaway Tonight, will be out in November. Um, elsewhere in my life, I am an educator with a specialty in Shakespeare studies. I worked for the American Shakespeare Center in Stanton, Virginia for seven years, and that informs a lot of my brain in general. And I'm a bookseller. I throw books at people. So that's a good life. <laughs> that does look a good life. It's fun. Just, just slinging books. I love Here, it. you want this. You don't know you want it, but you want it. Trust me. <laughs> and the booksellers who do that are truly magical people. And we need more of them in this world. Yes. Truth. Do you want me to go next? You're giving you me can that go look. Next. Like, like, <laughs> hi, this is Marshall Ryan Moreska. I am a fantasy novelist with 11 books out right now and a 12th one coming out in October. They're all set in the same mystical magical city of Meridane. There are four series that are intertwined together that are going to come together in 
a stunning semi-conclusion with the 12th book, which is People the City. The first ones of each of those series are... <gasps> okay, no, I'm not kidding. It's, it, is a d- it is a deep breath Marshall moment. Marshall and but... his stacks of books, everyone. My stacks of books. If you want to start any of those series, the starting books are The Thorn of Denton Hill, A Murder of Mages, Holver Alley Crew, and Way of the Shield. And then each of those is the start of its own series and then all those series intertwined together and then i've got another book coming out next february called the velocity of revolution which is like none of those whatsoever and it's it's some weird crazy wild diesel punk mushroom magic pansexual madness and that's gonna be a lot of fun once i get that that book locked down (laughs) Well, I am Rowena Miller, and you may have noticed a theme. I am a fantasy novelist as well, Um, and I just, uh, the last book in my Unraveled Kingdom trilogy just published, and that trilogy is about um, an 18th century somewhat inspired world um, undergoing some major revolution and social changes, all from the perspective of a seamstress who can cast magic with her sewing. Um, So... Yes, I think that we all enjoy building complicated, interesting fantasy worlds from various different angles, which is how we all landed here. <laughs> yes, because <laughs> each of us recognized I love to do all this sort of crazy nonsense that goes above and beyond what any readers actually care about and certainly don't necessarily want to read about in the books. <laughs> but. That's what appendices yes. are for. Yes, world building for masochists, proponent of the iceberg theory. <laughs> <laughs> Everything you see in the book <laughs> may be backed up by 90% more than what you actually read. So Do the work we and have, then hide we the work. Fun, we have fun getting there. So for our very first second season episode, we actually solicited questions from our listeners um, via Twitter. Um, And also via our Discord chat, um, which, by the way, listeners, if you are not in on, it's a good time. Um, Mm. So check that out. Um, Dive in when, you know, we don't talk about enough world building on here. You've got friends online who want to talk about it more. So um, we ended up with quite a range of questions. I don't know if we'll hit them all in this episode. We will try. We will do our best. Um, But I figure we can just dive in on answering some of these fantastic questions. Cass, would you like to take pick of the litter here on which one to go first with? I will. And it's I'm actually going to go with one that's first just in our queue because it's something that fascinates me. Uh, this is from, I'm, I'm going to apologize in advance if I mispronounce. I think it's Andre Galenes, 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 um, at Alistair Scriven on Twitter, asking, I haven't finished season one yet, so apologies if you've already discussed this, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on designing architecture and how it relates slash communicates culture and environment. I love that question, too. And honestly, I think there's an episode there. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. (laughs) We'll add that in the queue for season two. Um, But but yeah. Not only is there an episode, but there's an episode where I would want a guest star who is an expert on like architecture and history of architecture and things like that. Because I might know some people. Excellent. (laughs) I might know some people. So teaser for later in the season. This is just such an astute question because 
I mean, architecture absolutely does relate to and communicate both culture and environment. And I think that you can do a ton of work with just a few details about your architecture that convey what, what you need it to. Yeah, I think it ties in so much to a lot of things that y'all talked about in the first season with, you know, the climate, the environment. Are they a mobile people? Are they a settled people? Has this, wherever we are, has it been around for a long time or is it fairly new? How does it respond to, you know, changes? There, it, it, architecture is a product of so many different components of a society that it can reflect a ton of information. And it's so frequently just by function of what it is, a full building that you invested resources into putting up, it's both functional and also typically more than functional, like very, very little architecture is purely pragmatic. There are details and elements, you know, whether it's the shape of the windows or um, what direction a door faces that that are uh, about a lot more um, relating to cultural or religious or um, other kinds of norms. So it's it's kind of interesting because it's not it's not a purely pragmatic question ever, even though building a building is often very, very functional as well. And it, it's an area that I always feel really intimidated about when, when I'm writing because like I don't have I don't have the vocabulary necessarily to and I've you know plenty of times done the research in terms of like how I want to present what the architecture looks like but at the same time it's a thing where a like in point of view I don't know if like my point of view character would really necessarily recognize like oh those are flying buttresses because I know that sort of thing um <laughs> but also there, it's an area where I feel, at least in my personal experience, it it seems harder to be like sort of scrubbing the serial numbers off of whatever whatever cultural thing you're stealing from, because the architecture can seem to say so much about like where where specifically you're stealing from. Like if you use the word minaret, you're automatically people like oh. Mm-hmm. He's gonna, you know, he's gonna, he's taking it from this part of the world or something like that. And so that's, that's the big challenge for me is how do you, how do you use these things, the architectural things to evoke the imagery you want to evoke without it necessarily just seeming like you're doing a copy and paste. And, and that's a challenge I haven't quite figured out how to, how to surmount. I agree. And I think you're spot on as well that the terminology even in conveying the stuff can be difficult because there are a lot of things that I know on site and I might only know the terms because I'm kind of a historical house geek so I'm like oh look a cornice but like average people are not walking around in their towns going oh look it's a cornice well that's a mansard roof I mean they're not thinking that way but they could describe oh you know this this roof looks this particular way or this house evokes this particular feeling um but at the same time because we so frequently in fantasy default to western european images of what a fantasy world looks like you know you want to be specific and you want to have something specific to counter that default if you don't want people falling into that default you know if i say a cottage that like snap people have this image in their mind of the 
you know, the fantasy cottage that's a little stone hut with mud and daub roof. And, you know, it's like that's just where they go. And if you don't want that because you're pulling from other ideas, like you have to have some way of describing it that isn't, oh, look, a mansard roof. I feel like this is a place where geometry can help you do a lot of heavy lifting. You know, like, are the arches rounded or are they spiky? Are the windows, you know, a different shape or what have you? The thing I thought of when I read this question was like, the moment in my life that architecture as a reflection of, of a world became real to me, which was traveling in England during a heat wave for the first time, like, to, like 2006. I live in the American South and I've lived in a lot of buildings that were built before air conditioning. And you don't consciously process it all the time, but those buildings are designed to let air and heat move through them. They've got nice high ceilings so the air goes up um, they've got windows that sort of oppose each other and the doorways, you know, it's, the air moves through. England, I discovered on a 95 degree day, <laughs> was not built that way. Um, English houses are designed to trap heat for the most part, because that's for most of their history been the bigger concern. And so everything's at odd angles, the ceilings aren't as high, and it becomes sweltering so much faster. And so like, I feel like details like that can also communicate a lot about the space. Is it airy or is it close? Is it, you know, can you move easily from room to room or is it more of a warren? Absolutely. I am in my book. Um, I made a point of the, the nation just to the south of, of the nation that my main characters are from is, is hotter and more humid and that they're, you know, really um, fancy ornate buildings, whereas in um, Galatha, the nation where my main characters are from, would be multiple stories. These are spread out. They have villas because you start stacking stories on top of each other. Things get hotter, you know, that heat rises, gets trapped. So they have a lot of spread out open piazzas, um, rooftop stuff, because then you can go up and catch a breeze. And so that was in some ways easier because it was to convey in, in the book because it was something my main character would notice. It was different and strange rather than what you walk around your own town seeing feels very familiar and you don't always question those functionalities because you, as you said, Cass, you know, you, you live there. You don't think about this is just how it works. This is why we did it this way. Another trick you can employ is by drawing on the other elements of your world building. Like if you've done your history work or if you've done your your you know other cultures work you can simply be like oh the towers are the design from you know the whatever age was the the century before and use that and use use the like you know they stole the design from our next door neighbors and things like that so you don't necessarily have to describe what it looks like but what it means to the people who are looking at it because they recognize oh this is this is an old building and this is an old design this is this is something we appropriated from from our neighbors without necessarily evoking what now you won't be able to have anybody like draw good fan art off of that necessarily but you can at least get <laughs> it becomes something that feels more lived in and i think that can be as much of of an aid in terms of making your world feel real as a if you can't describe it necessarily using the right terms agreed since I feel like we have another whole episode in us about this to, to talk about, maybe we put a pin in we that. We should put one. a pin in that, and, and um, and we should put a pin in that and um, look tune in later this season, season for sure. 
<laughs> That's what this whole episode is. It's just teasers for things we're going to talk about in full yes. with smarter people <laughs> over the course of the over the course of the year. Because each of these definitely has there is an expert we can probably call on that is not a <laughs> yes. not that we aren't brilliant, decisive, amazing writers who you should read every book we wrote, but. <laughs> And we're cute. Don't we're forget that we're cute. Super cute. Um, <laughs> and thank you, every listener who so has this... written to tell us that. <laughs> we appreciate it more than you know. So this question, I um, I I can't resist jumping to this one next. This one came from M L Eden, um, who is at M L um, Eden on Twitter. What are some rules to create colorful expletives? <laughs> Yay. <laughs> um, I, I I think a lot about this for various reasons. I am fascinated by language in general, and profanity is such an interesting facet of language. And you guys have talked about this a little bit on prior episodes, like where, where the swear words come from. Are they like religious in nature or are they bodily function in nature? But I think on a more granular level, you can think also about like how you verb them. <laughs> Because the difference between, and and this is where we're going to get our blue label here, the difference between, like, fuck, fucking, fuckwad, fuck wit, fucked up, totally fucked, like, what, how you append <laughs> things to the word totally changes the meaning. And I think that can be a fun thing to play with, even if you're using invented terms. Um, the one that came to mind was the one that gets used in Star Wars media, criff, criffing, and things like that. But, like, there are still, like, rules of grammar that get applied to and broken through profanity in ways that I just like, they blow my mind. It's great. It, it does fascinate me how so many sci-fi franchises, clearly they just wrote the script saying fuck and then did some sort of copy and paste with either- Control F. With yep. either yep. Frick. Yep. Search and replace. Search and replace with replace. either Frick or Frell or <laughs> Frack or- Frack, yeah. <laughs> But, like, notice how all of those have very similar linguistic feels in your mouth. They're, like, fricatives, mm -hmm. and they're the hard k -k -k consonants. Like, there are certain sounds that I feel like, in English at least, we associate with naughty language that, and they're always, like, they're usually short to begin with. You might make them longer through appendages, but they're usually one syllable to start with, because sometimes you just need that fast thing that you can say vehemently and they're, they're they're very like crunchy in your mouth they are satisfying to feel come out of your mouth like we wouldn't like ploof would be a terrible curse word because there's just no satisfaction in being like well ploof like no <laughs> and i think like especially if you're like gonna conlang your way through profanity that should be like the sort of soft rule you use is like how does this sound in my mouth if i were to hit my hand with a hammer would this be a natural thing to say? And would that would that feel satisfying once I said it when I hit my hand with the hammer? It's like, haven't there actually even been like studies that have shown that people perceive pain less if they are cursing while the painful thing is going on? They so there is like, a, real, yeah. a real cathartic, you know, impact to cursing. So explore that fully, I guess. <laughs> um, you know, because we, we have talked about, you know, where where do the words even come from and that you kind of you can start with asking you know what is sacred in a culture and therefore what is profane and how does profanity like profane the sacred 
And I think it, it's interesting how much of a deep dive you can end up doing just to come up with a curse word. Like I was, I was just like screwing around on a draft and I had, I hadn't developed a full religious system for these people yet. And what I had developed did not lend itself well to cursing because it was kind of like a logic based non-religion religion. Anyway, I ended up having to like stop what I was doing and be like, okay, so where am I going to get the curse words from? Because I haven't, I haven't pulled all these things into, you know, real relief out of out of the culture yet because they are so intrinsically tied to what do you value and then what can you like pervert by creating a word a word or a phrase to undermine those values yeah and then so in my book specifically in velocity the one of the challenges i had in writing is by creating a world where people have sex a lot more casually and there's no concept of like necessarily legitimate parentage. So swearing with the word fuck and using the word bastard was just right out because it didn't make logical sense within the culture. And I had to stop myself so many times where my instinct would be like this fucking guy. And like, no, I can't do that. <laughs> because your characters would be like, oh, he's he's actually engaged in coitus right now. We're very jolly for him. Well done, sir. Because yeah, I would be just like, these bastards are going to be like, no, because nobody cares about bastardy at all in this culture. So <laughs> that's not going to work. And so that's that sort of thing had to shape the way the dialogue naturally flows in my head when I'm writing it. And, and that was a big challenge for me in that one. So that's, but that's certainly a thing you have to think about when you've the other elements of your world that you've built and then what can become an expletive or an insult based on, and we talked about this a little bit last week where we were talking about how in ancient Rome, there were specific words for like somebody who's too old to be having sex with an older man or something like that. And they had, <laughs> and, but that, that these terms were very specific to what was and wasn't acceptable within the culture. And that's, that's the sort of thing that you can take off of the other world building elements that you've integrated into what you've been building. What? I actually did a whole yeah. paper in, in grad school about a certain kind of swearing in um, early modern England. And one of the things I found was that like the words we consider swear words obviously have changed, but the words that people considered insulting enough to be worth going to court over, because by God, the English love to sue each other. Um, <laughs> for women, it was sort of what you would expect, like being called a slut or a whore was what women considered worth going to court over. But for men, it was thievery was the biggest number one thing they would go to court over was being called a thief or um, some of the other ones were like, you know, a vagrant, a, a like things like that. But like it was it was people who occupied a place of social disorder. But there was a very gendered split in how that manifested, which I thought was absolutely fascinating. I did a ridiculous deep dive into ecclesiastical court records for this paper. I was like, this is amazing. You know, I think it's interesting that on the flip side I have a really hard time finding a culture that does not have some form of scatological curse word I'm sure that they exist but it seems like one of the universals of humanity is that we do think that poo is gross so when in... like... <laughs> <laughs> you know so it's you can always fall back on you know if 
maybe your culture doesn't have the kinds of sacred profane or the kinds of cultural values that lend themselves well to curse words and insults, but they, they probably have things they think are gross. So if you can identify what's gross, you can probably come up with some good curse words based on it. And I'm amazed by like just the sheer variety of of poo words that we have. Like there's there's shit, right? But there's also like horse shit, and that means something specific. And bullshit means something specific. And chicken shit means something specific. And so you know it's it's kind of it's it seems very simple, but but you can really you can really work with it <laughs> quite a bit. That made me think of like different bodily functions that might be considered gross and i feel like in the time of covid like you coffer how dare you <laughs> could become like you're such a sneeze how dare you <laughs> phlegmatic person that wouldn't work it's too yeah. available but still like that could be a place to get creative with like what parts of the body and what mucuses are considered the gross what ones. fluids what fluids do you want to talk about uh, none i don't want to talk about <laughs> <laughs> but to imply that somebody is a fluid. Yes. Yes. You know, and it's interesting, too. I remember a long conversation um, on Twitter that a lot of people were involved in. Um, and I can't remember everyone, so I'm not even going to try. But one of the points was um, that some of the words that we think of as being very westernized or reflective of Western values or Christian values um, do have counterparts in plenty of other cultures. And one of the ones that they, they talked about was damn. Um, that the idea of being damned or like, you know, people have criticized, well, if you don't have a Christian God, then you can't be damning people too. And it's like, well, but plenty of cultures have a concept of condemnation on a higher level than just human to human. I don't like what you're doing or the word hell that that can mean a very specific, you know, supernatural concept but it can also just mean like a real bad time so you know that there there is some room to be um kind of looser in your use of um of those words that in some ways you are just kind of translating cultural concepts into english that your reader will understand and if you know damn it is about the closest thing that you can come up with it it, it works you can roll with it permission granted is, is it my turn to pick a question? Okay. I think, I think it it's your turn to pick a question. Okay. Let's see. What is a good one? Could This one comes from Eddie Vulick, who is at Zadaya on Twitter, who says, could you spend some time on cities of all flavors, please? And also <laughs> adds that we are all so cute, which thank you. We do really love that. Thank you, Eddie. <laughs> um, Marshall, I just, I genuinely can't believe that's the question you went yeah, for. Yeah, it's such so a shocker. <laughs> I, feel so like, I feel like Marshall, I mean, maybe has spent some time on cities of one flavor or, or another. <laughs> I mean, clearly I do have a lot of thoughts on, on world building, specifically cities, and writing, specifically cities. Um, one of the big things that when I was writing sort of came as like this revelation of like oh but that it's it seemed revelatory and at the same time was like this is screamingly obvious and why did i not realize this was obvious is cities need specificity 
and to to embrace that as much as possible because i was thinking of how many fantasy books i read in the 80s and 90s where every city seems to have one street and one bar and then there's a castle and then there's like another alley that you know is where bad things happen and that's the whole city (laughs) i mean it's kind of like how you know in the secret magic parts of harry potter there's really just diagon alley and nocturne alley and nothing else and that's fine that they only have like two secret alleys in the back of somewhere in london but if you're gonna have a real actual living breathing city then it's gotta have all these various elements and people will be specific about it you know neighborhoods will have real names that have you know cultural relevance streets will have names they will have systems of how to find a specific location and just like these are things that should seem obvious just because they're an a regular part of our own lives in terms of like we all have streets that have names and we have parks that have names and we have specific statues and we have specific addresses and all that but yet in fantasy we tend not to see that too much which is kind of fascinating but so that's my the biggest piece of advice i have is if you're going to have a city delve and dive into the specificity of what it means to live in that city for the people who live there and try and know it the same way as if if you were writing something that took place in manhattan that would feel legitimate to people who lived in manhattan because if you just were like i crossed a bridge and then was in central park and you like people would be like what the fuck is wrong with you (laughs) um and you should like that's again this is one of those areas where it's a good idea to just go deeper than it's ever going to be on the page because that will make it feel real if you know your city the way a resident would know it i think really early in season one and it may have even been the first episode we kind of touched on this idea that um, sometimes in some fantasy works, it feels like you're on a cheap Hollywood, not even Hollywood, off-brand Hollywood right. <laughs> that you have that one alley and that one bar and that, you know, one, ca- not even the whole castle, you get like a side of a castle and like one interior room, you know, like, that's all we could afford. Um, and, you know, you really, especially in, in working with a city, you have to bust out of that a little bit. And that doesn't necessarily mean describing everything in painful, painful detail. Again, you know, you've got your iceberg, but that you have that sense that there's more to the places surrounding your character than just that one bar and that one street and that that one alley where bad things happen. Yeah, I think something that, that Marshall, I love in your books and that is so interesting to think about too is the idea of... (laughs) Yes, you're very cute. Is the idea of is the idea of neighborhoods and like not everywhere in the city is the same. The same way that like sci-fi tends to be like this entire planet is one biosphere. Yeah. <laughs> Often you'll get like this entire city has one culture like, you know, as though as though it is all made of a piece, all made at the same time, all occupied by people of the same socioeconomic class and it's like no, this is going to be totally different and sometimes people one street across from each other might hate each other for no readily definable reason but if you ask them about it they can tell you four generations back why they have this feud and i think that adds a lot of that veracity i mean i think if any of us thought about like the places we grew up we'd be like oh well this neighborhood is obviously superior to this one or this one or what have you or this neighborhood was more fun and they gave out the really big candy bars at halloween there so like that sort of granular detail 
I think is what can give a lot of the life to making a city seem, like you said, real and lived in and organic, not I built this out of a kit yeah. <laughs> and put it together. Right, right. Well, I think if you think about any large um, city today that you might be familiar with, I mean, all of these neighborhoods have names typically, right? It's like you've got boroughs in New York or you've got wards in New Orleans, you know, and if you ask a local, like they can tell you what neighborhood they live in. They can tell you what neighborhood their favorite you know, cafe is in or, or whatever. And I think that you don't have to go through and name all of your quarters or boroughs or wards or whatever your city has, but having an idea of what those might be is probably a good idea. And knowing, you know, where does your character live? Where does your character work? Are they the same? Do they have to pass through other places? Are there places that they feel more or less welcome depending on who they are? Um, and, and thinking about that element of how does your character traverse their city and how do they define those spaces can be really helpful in making sure that it does feel um, lived in and vibrant and realistic rather than flat. And along those lines, you can ask yourself, what are the, what are the hard real rules in terms of living in the city and what are the unspoken but everybody knows rules in terms of living in the city like nobody will actually say hey don't go into that park after 10 p.m unless you're unless you're looking to meet up with somebody to have sex with but everybody knows that that's what you do if you're going to that park after 10 (laughs) or things like that well and probably a good question is the like what how do you spot a tourist what do they clearly not yes that's that that actually is a really good technique of like what would what mistakes would a tourist make walking through the city and can you can you think about those things and along the lines of naming things there's also the idea of like what things are named on paper and what how they're actually called by the people who live there yes you know one thing to think about too um and i Again, I, I think we sometimes make the mistake of thinking of this as like an American thing, but it's it's really not um, that if you look at a lot of cities and their neighborhood names or just how they're known colloquially, you have a lot of little fill in the blanks. You have a lot of little Italy's and a lot of, you know, little Poland's and little, you know, all over the place because people of different ethnic groups and immigrant groups settled in those places. And so I think thinking about your cities as places of intersecting cultures, intersecting um, groups of people, people who are immigrating, people who, um, you know, how many generations have folks been there? Are a lot of people who are in the city lifelong residents or are they very new? And I think thinking about those, like how do people move? Cities are places that people move into and move out of in really interesting ways. Um, so you have a lot of opportunity there to add some depth and to think about, you know, the, the very real ways that people interact with each other and the issues that cities face in terms of the varied populations that they have living in them. And if you can sort of delve into the history of how the city built up in the first place, like if you, if you can really dive in and do the work, and this is a lot of work and I can certainly understand why nobody necessarily wants to do this where you like literally will start as a village and then build it out and build it out and do the thing where like then we built this canal through here and thus this neighborhood built up and then this happened in this neighborhood like if you can do that work 
then that'll make it even more vibrant and real. Now, that's a lot of work, and you probably don't want to do that. But you're listening to a <laughs> podcast called World Building for Masochists, so maybe you really do <laughs> want to do that kind of work. Who knows? You could also just think sort of on a basic level of, was this city planned, or did it spring up out of yeah. nowhere? Because, I mean, if you look at so many cities in Europe that began as Roman fortresses, they have a grid system because the Roman legionary camp operated on a grid system. And if that camp became a permanent camp, became a town, became a city, the core of that city tends to still have that exact same grid. Whereas if you look at Rome itself, I defy you to find a right angle <laughs> on the streets in that city. Um, London's the same way. London just careens into itself at all angles because it sort of popped up in bits and pieces over time. Um, or like the city where I'm from, Richmond, has a part that's well-planned and ordered. And then as it grows outward into the suburbs, it gets a lot more woobly is a great word for it. And the name thing also becomes a thing because like the West End of Richmond and the actual West End of Richmond these days are two completely different places. Because what used to be the West End is now six miles from what is currently considered the West End, but we still call this the West End and this is the far West End, but it's actually the West End. And it just gets, it's one of those things where like, yeah, if you don't live here, you don't know that. If you look on a map, the West End is a particular place, but how would the city good, grow? Like, yeah. I think that a good shortcut question that you can use, if maybe you don't want to be quite as masochistic as you could be, is just to ask, why here? Why is there a city here? What is unique about this location that caused a city to happen instead of just, you know, a run-of-the-mill middling town? Maybe it's strategically located from a military perspective. Maybe it's on a major, you know, seaport trade route. Maybe the railroad went through there and then another railroad went through there and it's kind of close to both. So I think that you can do a lot of shortcut work by just asking, well, why am I putting my city here on the map I have either in my head or on paper or on a fancy computer program or whatever you're doing? Why is your city there? Along those lines, certainly try to make sure that your city makes sense being there because there's so many fantasy books where there's some weird city that makes no goddamn sense whatsoever because it's on a mesa a mile high in the middle of a desert and you have to ask yourself how are they getting food and water in this place because no no water could get to the top of the mesa there's no place to grow any food there's no defined trade routes to bring food there but yet i mean it's one of those things that people do in fantasies just because it looks cool and i am all for the because it looks cool rule but add a, add a little bit of common sense to that also because that'll, that'll just make it work so much better just think about how things get into the city and how things get out of the city if nothing else <laughs> And perhaps before we move on to worrying about sewage systems, think about the sewage systems. Move on though. to another question. <laughs> that's that's... <laughs> these are crucial things. Just give it some thought, because <laughs> you have a lot of people. <laughs> okay, I'll stop now. <laughs> <laughs> move us to another question, Rowena. Um... <laughs> <laughs> Cass, is it is it your turn to pick for I think us? it is. I think it is. Okay. And I am going to, being the, the book slinger that I am, I'm going to take the question from uh, Nix on Discord. If you could suggest one book to read about the writing craft, which one would it be? 
go give people things to put on their TBR. Huh. That's a that's a tough one because I'm not. I, I've it's been a long time since I've read any good craft books that you know. Though I probably should have you know a number of them in. <laughs> We're all looking stymied here, like <laughs> books on craft. Well, and I have to admit, I'm I'm that asshole who always answers this question with just read a yeah. lot, yeah. read a lot in your genre, and read a lot of recently published stuff. I mean, it's it's great to read the older stuff too. I'm not putting the older stuff down, but um, one thing that I do notice sometimes with just chatting with with newer writers or people who are maybe a little bit uh, more unplugged from what's going on in the genre right now is that they they don't necessarily know what is current and what is uh, like a like I have this really new idea that no one's done and I'm thinking like well that's I know that's ten very people who've done that. <laughs> You know, and that's great, and I love your idea, and you should keep do that thing. But I think that it it makes you um, not only aware, like in a oh you don't want to duplicate sense, but in a this is this is where the field is right now. You know, if if you were in academia, you'd be reading up on all of you know the current studies in your field to know where is the field, what is what is the discourse, how are people talking about these ideas? And in fantasy, we have that too. We have a, how are people talking about these ideas? Um, and I think that that spreads out in a lot of ways into a lot of your craft. I know this question was about craft, less about, you know, where do you get your ideas or how do you pick what to write about? But if you have an understanding of, you know, how are we talking about this stuff and what are we talking about? and how are we writing about it i think that you can start yourself out in a more comfortable place um to have a, a confident plot and confident characterization and feel a lot freer actually to do more stuff yeah because certainly i've had people suggest like this is the thing i'm writing because this is great brand new idea that nobody's done and it's kind of the fantasy novel equivalent of this is this crazy idea what about a phone you had in your pocket <laughs> it's like yeah if you pitched that in the 80s that would have been a real bold new idea but mm, not as much anymore <laughs> the um the thing that leapt to my mind with this question isn't actually a book about writing books but it's about a book about writing screenplays and it's really actually any of Sid Field's books about screenplay writing. And what I have gotten out of those is help with pacing, mm. which is probably the component of my writing that could use the most work. Um, I like to meander my way through a story, <laughs> but the books on screenwriting are really great for helping you think about how the exciting events of a plot sort of beat out in, in a definable way. And a screenplay has a much, much stricter rule around those um if you're writing spec scripts and things and and you sort of have to hit certain page marks is what people expect to see fiction writing can be a lot looser but i do think that like reading a book about that can help you think about how do i apply these lessons about pacing to the work that i'm doing in a related but slightly different field i think that's a that's really smart though um i feel like i have learned more about plot and pacing from watching bad movies than I've ever learned from what from reading good books because you see immediately the the mistakes and the breaks you know when your expectations of plot and your expectations of pacing are not fulfilled mm -hmm. um 
you know, when you have a, a movie that starts out with a fight scene between people and you don't know who they are. And it's just like, you know, the scene the scene would work if I cared about these characters. Even even a tiny bit, <laughs> it would work. But I don't, so I'm just watching two people hit each other. You know, or or <laughs> or when the plot at the end just kind of meanders off and you're like, Is this is it over No, it's not over yet. Is it o nope, we're still going. And I think so, you know, there's my plug. Aren't this is the, this is the worst answer to this question ever. For craft, your craft books question. I'm answering watch bad movies. I apologize. <laughs> I'm a horrible person. But to an extent, I mean, I agree because I had a very similar process. If you look at how other mediums are telling the sorts of stories that are like the stories you want to tell, you can get a solid sense of how those pacings and those beats work. And then also reading about like how script writing or screenwriting works and the expectations of the beats in that can give you a sense of where your beats necessarily need to be when you're writing a novel. And I just would say any writing craft book that's more about here is a sense of how your structure can go and how you can achieve that rather than things that feel more like formula. Like if it, if it is just like, here is a deconstruction of this story and now here's how you replicate it. Just stay away from that because that's not what you want to do. You want to you want to figure out how they do what they do. You don't want to just copy the recipe. And so you want to find things that give you a sense of how it works rather than just what the beat by beat is. Just like if you're cooking, you don't want to just follow recipes. You want to learn why that works and then you can play around and come up with new things. Yes. So I I in some ways want to apologize a little bit to Nix. We didn't give you many books to read. Um, we just gave you life but advice. But you know instead. what? Maybe we'll, pose, maybe, maybe we'll pose the question to um, our listeners and followers on, on Twitter and see if they can pop any more good craft books because I agree. I am I am in many ways blanking on ones that I, I feel like I can really, really recommend. So we'll, we'll put that out there for future... I mean, the big one people always say is Stephen King's on writing, which is a solid one. It's a fine one. That's, you know, that's a good one to read. But like, don't don't make it your Bible. Don't make any book on craft your Bible. Rifle through it. Find the things you need and then throw it away. You should you should be always be blasphemous with writing advice because for for like every solid piece of writing advice out there, like it doesn't work for someone. So blasphemy. Blasphemy welcome with writing. Every like hard writing rule somebody tries to tell you, there's some beloved book that sets that rule on fire. All right. Shall we shall we pop on? Yeah. I think we have time to hit up. So this question actually came into us uh, via email a while ago, but I think it's worth popping into really quickly and kind of uh, covering on. So Chris Barrett emailed us um and said, um, I've been impressed with your commitment to keep things inclusive by challenging our biases and making conscious choices in our worlds. And wants to ask a particular question about fantasy racists. He says, I feel like besides a lot of the racial biases we see in fantasy writing, the typical fantasy races, air quotes, also open up um, a wealth of natural areas to explore where humans have typically stayed away from living in. Dwarves in and under mountains, elves in the deep forests, etc. These have been fun places to explore and creating quote-unquote races that are not like humans, some authors have found an easy 
or maybe lazy way of getting us into those interesting places. So he, he asked us, would we have any interest in returning to that question about fantasy races and talking about how we can rethink ways our environs can engage the world and find interesting ways to inhabit typically uninhabitable places, maybe without falling back into the convenient trope of fantasy races? It's an interesting question because I feel like there actually are so few environs that humans will not at least try to inhabit because we are a absolutely wild race of beings in and of ourselves and we will try to live anywhere for a variety of reasons but it's interesting to think about where where people can really thrive and what other conditions what technology what cultural expectations can allow them to thrive in a certain kind of environment yeah no i agree i think that it's it is very difficult to find some place um on on earth that people are not living in i think in inside mountains like dwarves you might have me on that one um but we certainly have people living in you know in deep forests or you know very harsh deserts or um frozen places that, that make me kind of shudder because I don't like being cold. Um, but, <laughs> you know, I think that it's, it's a good starting point to just say, well, why am I assuming people can't live here? Um, and do I have analogs in, in the real world that, that maybe show me and can teach me how people do live here? Now, I, I don't necessarily advocate picking up an entire culture wholesale and dumping it into your fantasy world. I'm not saying, you know, oh, I have a world that looks kind of like the Australian outback. I will just pluck up Aboriginal people and plop them into my world. Like not a great idea, but, but those, you know, investigations can teach us, I think a lot about the kind of strategies people use to cope with, with harsh environments. And I think like we've, kind of steered away from doing fantasy races of all kinds, especially the the more traditional role-playing style Tolkien-esque fantasy races, just because that sort of goes against our underlying thesis statement. Like, if you're going to... Like, why, why are you doing dwarves and elves if, like, unless you're wanting to make something that kind of takes Tolkien and files the serial numbers off? Like, I can... If you're going to do that, then do something very interesting with it. But you can do, you certainly can do other things that involve races of intelligent beings that are not human and use specific environmental niches as what makes them unique and, and have and have a good time playing with that. But you'll, you need to think about if you're in doing that, if you're falling into like racist tropes or something like that, because you're, you're doing things that are kind of gross but trying to like hide it by the fact that they're sort of orc-like rather than human-like or something like that for example you can have some like sort of fish-like humanoids who live right off the coast or you can have like more furry polar berry kind of creatures that live in live in the arctic or something like that or things that can thrive underground because that is a place that humans don't necessarily like to live but if you make something rabbit like or mole like that lives underground then sure run with that and have fun making those into fully formed three-dimensional cultures rather than just like 
these are dwarves and they live in the mountains and they mine things and they have beards and that is all I have to say about them. <laughs> <laughs> well, I feel like we can go with two, you know, if, if you want to play, there's magic. So if there is an environment that humans, you know, have not comfortably conquered in our real, real world, if for instance, underwater, you know, maybe you have a magical solution to that and you can play with, well, we have the magic that forms the underwater solid air bubble that permits us to build cities underwater. And like, you do it well, I will roll with it. That sounds like it's really fun to play with. So I think that you can always fall back on, it's not cheating to use magic and fantasy. You just have to think it through. I think something similar applies often to, to science fiction if you're dealing with alien races and like, you know, are these methane breathers? And then how do we address that? Then how, how would that build, you know, their tech and things differently than ours? And then how do we interact with that? But also thinking about like, it makes me think of how, you know, in Star Wars and Star Trek and stuff, often a fantasy race is created because we could do this with the costume. We found that the prosthetics worked on their face in this way, but we couldn't make the prosthetics work in this way, and so we had to change it. But then fans will take that information and build so much biology around it, thinking about, you know, like, why do they have the scales in this part of their body, but not this part of their body? Why are their ears shaped like that? And I think you can ask that about, you know, fantasy races too. Like, why are elves pointy-eared? What, what reason is there? What is there some evolutionary advantage that that has given them that you can somehow use to actually tell the story and interrogate sort of the fantasy tropes and the fantasy assumptions? Um, the, the author that I think of that did that just brilliantly in so many ways was Terry Pratchett and the way he played with the expectations of like what dwarves are and um, other fantasy races in, in this world that like well yes you know the older dwarves they still like to live in the mountains but we new dwarves we're we're seeking out <laughs> the city and we're doing new things and like it was just it was a fun way of spinning all of it on its head so do we have time for one more or are we so our final question of the night comes from irene colthurst who's at irene colth on twitter who asks us, what are some models for creating a world focused on the rule of aristocrats? Um, and I, I find this an interesting question just because it sort of comes baked in with a bunch of presumptions in terms of like what an aristocrat is and like what does that mean that they're ruling? Um, so one of the things that just sort of jumps to mind is how do you create who the ruling class of the society you're building is and what is it what is the defining factor that makes them the ruling class and how do they maintain that why has there not already been a rebellion that kicks them out of their fancy houses and onto the street and i think there's a lot of ways you can play with that in terms of how your society built up in the first place how these people got into charge in the first place i don't know if there's necessarily like a model you want to use but you can think about in terms of where that where that power comes from in the first place and how it's maintained and then once they're in power how do they how do they impose their will upon the people and is it is it a rule of law thing or is it a rule of like social mores and do they use that to keep their place in the world or not 
Yeah, I think that there's so much variation in what origins and what kinds of, you know, ruling upper classes you can have, because you can have a religious oligarchy that is based in a, you know, strict practice of, of religion and very closely tied to faith-based ideas. You can have um, something that's very trade-based or um, assets-based, that it's just the richest people are in charge and how do they get to be that way and how do they stay that way. Um, you can have um, sometimes related, but not quite the same thing, who had military power at one point. Um, so, you know, you think about a lot of a lot of our European fantasy defaults that have lords and ladies and that kind of thing. I mean, that that's tying back to people who have military power and and at some point got, you know, like recognized for that. And, and as time shuffled along, that became um, other kinds of authority as well. So I think like what are the origins are a really good question to ask. And are you still at those origins or has it evolved someplace past that? But there's still traces of what it used to be still present and who's in charge and why they get to stay in charge. And I think if you're working in a fantasy world, one of the big questions is going to be if your world has magic, are your aristocrats magical? And is that is that what makes them aristocrats or is it not? And there's a lot to interrogate there about, you know, the rules around magic and how common it is, who can have it, and how it affects the power dynamics. Um, the, a book, I think, if, if we're looking for models that did a great job of sort of interrogating that was Vic James, The Gilded Cage, and the other two books in that trilogy, which posited an England that had a magical aristocracy that absolutely enforced their rule through their magic and, and absolutely subjugated the other 99% of people through that. And like they accumulated wealth and they accumulated other kinds of power, but it, the heart of it was because of their magic. But of course, you can also think of lots of examples of places where the magic users are the outcasts and not in power. And so I think that's that's a place that fantasy especially can can interrogate where power comes from and how it's maintained is by adding that sort of extra element into the equation. Yeah, and I think one other thing in terms of if you want to think about models or rules or things to think about is um, it's very easy to think about an aristocracy as being a block and everybody else as being a block. But most of the time, because aristocracies are a form of political body, they're not all going to agree with one another. And so there's a lot to exploit there in terms of uh, you know, story, plot, characterization, um, but also exploring what are the cultural norms in your society? What do people care about? What are their values? How is that the society holding together or fracturing? Um, because not all of these people in charge are going to agree with each other. So, you know, what are they doing to uphold or enforce or undermine or, you know, whatever they want to do? Um, and I think that, you know, you have a lot of play there in terms of thinking about how how do you talk politics in your world? And it, it can go a lot of different directions because it can be kind of like heavy politics or it can be lighter court intrigue, but you can weave that stuff in regardless. I think one thing to think about a lot is to figuring out the hierarchies of your aristocracy. And is it strictly a a vertical thing of who outranks who or is there 
Are there several vertical hierarchies that interact with each other and how fluidly one can move in between one or the other, whether there is class fluidity where by making enough money or, or being nice to the right person can get you elevated to a different level. Or if it's a hard caste system, or if it's a, more of a loose class system that's just simply understood and people don't step outside of whatever they're born into. Like there's a lot of, there's a lot of different choices you can make. And the big thing, as we always say here is to make active choices of how the society works instead of just presuming to copy and paste off of, off of uh, any European court intrigue. Cause why do that? Everybody's it's been done. Don't do that. It's been done. <laughs> Do something new. But also you can you can look at history for so many different yes. models. Like what we think of as as standard model feudalism was not the standard model for more than a couple of hundred years. And like the 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 way that thanes worked in in Nordic cultures and the way that things work in other parts of the world and, and just like there's so many options historically that you can use as for models. Is it a plutocracy? Is it an oligarchy? Is aristocracy hereditary or does it wipe out in each generation? Like there's so many different options to play with that that really existed that we know, you know, you can you can use as your model. You can use in a real world way because they were out there. They happened. I think we are we are at and past our hour because of fantastic <laughs> listener questions. And I feel like that is a good place to leave us off is make active choices. Um, and I think that we can promise that we will continue to do so um, throughout this season. Um, we look forward to um, talking about the topics we've already kind of teased you about um, on this episode. Um, feel free to drop us a line, I think, anytime with things you'd like us to talk about because we're always looking for new ideas of things to geek about. I, that's always welcome. Um, I'm excited. This is going to be a good year. I, I feel it. I feel it deep in my bones. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you again to our listeners who gave us questions for, um, for this evening. We had a fantastic time with them. So thank you. Hi you, thanks for listening to this episode of World Building for Masochists and letting us help you overcomplicate your writing life. We're thrilled you've joined us on the second year of our journey. Our next episode goes up on July 8th where Rowena Cass and I will be talking about visual arts and how and why you can use them in your worlds. We really hope you liked this episode. If you did, please take a minute to tell a friend, shout about us on the internet, or leave a review on iTunes. If you've got questions or just want to tell us how cute we are, there are a number of ways to contact us. We are on Twitter as at WorldBuildCast, and our email is WorldBuildCast at gmail.com. We also have a Discord chat room linked on the About the Show page of our website if you want to come and chat with us and other fans of the podcast. We'd love for you to share the worlds you're making and help us all build until it hurts. <laughs>